and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. So the year is nearly at an end. Parliament is closed for Christmas, MPs are back in their constituencies, and with a bit of luck, we won't be hearing too much from the government or politicians for the next week or so. But before we say goodbye to 2023, Inside Briefing is here for a trip down recent memory lane. British politics has been set to warp speed for at least the last half decade or more, but although the last 12 months were a little less frenetic, after all we only had one Prime Minister, they were still packed with incident, unexpected twists and some unlikely turns. So what were the highs? How serious are the lows? And what might it all tell us about what's to come in the year ahead? I'm joined by two IFG colleagues who are still going strong despite a wave of Covid sweeping through the IFG, rather too many deadlines and a gruelling Christmas social circuit, and that's Giles Wilkes and Jill Rutter. Hi both. Hi Hannah. Hello. And I'm absolutely delighted that we're joined again by David Runciman, Professor of Politics at Cambridge University, author of a number of books, including How Democracy Ends, former host of the Talking Politics podcast and current host of Past, Present and Future, another excellent podcast I can recommend to you all. Hi, David. How are you? I'm very well. It's very nice to be back. It's great to have you back. Now, you joined us, David, uh, on this podcast nearly 365 days ago for our first podcast of the year when we looked ahead to 2023. I've had a little listen back. Oh, dear. (laughs) Oh, dear. This is rather (laughs) ominous. We're going to look back at some of the things we thought would happen. Uh Uh-uh. 2023 began with Rishi Sunak attempting a restart of his government by setting out five pledges. Since then, he has tried a headline-grabbing reshuffle, bringing back a former prime minister and trying to reinvent himself as a change candidate. David, you actually said at the start of the year you thought Sunak wouldn't be able to relaunch. Do you think that's been proven? Oh, that that's a relief. I was wondering what I'd said at the start of the year. <laughs> I, I think so, yes. And actually, looking back on this year, it strikes me for all the frenetic activity you mentioned at the start there, not a lot has changed. Um, certainly not a lot has changed in the prospects of the parties, thinking about an election, but also not a lot has changed in the, the mood of British politics, it seems to me. And it was a lot of frenetic activity to no particular end. So I don't think, I mean, leaving polling aside, and the polling is you know, f- for a period when British politics has been on warp speed, the polling has been pretty stable. Um, n- nothing has budged it. I just don't feel that 12 months on, anyone is in a particularly different position than they were 12 months ago. And actually, I also think, and I'm sure we'll get on to talking about Labour in a bit, that that means a lot of time has been wasted. A lot of time has been wasted in this shadow boxing and jousting and repositioning and relaunching and second guessing the other side. If you'd said to the leading politicians at the start of the year, you're kind of going to be where you are now at the end of the year, they might have thought the year could be better spent thinking about more important things, like how government works, what we can do better, the state of the British economy, the state of the British state, all of that, not all this shadow boxing. One of the things you also said at the start of the year was that it would be interesting to deploy a lie detector on Rishi Sunak and ask whether he genuinely thinks the Conservatives have any chance at all of winning the next election. What do you think of that lie detector would reveal today? Um, well, I think he would be a year older and wiser and therefore realise that very little works of the things that he planned to do. And I suspect deep down, and again, I don't want to jump the gun, I'm, I'm sort of more interested in doing that same test on Labour politicians and 
discovering do any of them really think they have a chance of losing it because it seems to me that's the more important question because they're all going around behaving as though they could lose it when it seems to me that they can't um i think as if you're a tory you have to believe in the hail mary possibility but it's really hard to imagine what that hail mary thing would be and definitely bringing back david cameron it's many things but it's not a hail mary pass joe what's the scorecard on the five pledges do you think we'll be hearing less about them now uh it's quite interesting because uh yeah, there's about to be a top Institute for Government assessment of the five pledges due out on the 4th of January, I think. Everyone um, will be looking forward to that. Then. So do look at that, which I've got a sort of early crib sheet on. But the one thing I was going to say that has changed uh, on the basis of what David was saying, it's Rishi Sunak's personal rating, because what we've seen, I think, is Stasis and the Conservative Party's rating. They were a long way behind and they stayed a long way behind. But Rishi Sunak started the year a lot more popular than the party, but does his personal ratings do seem to have uh, moved downwards over the course of the year. I don't know whether that's giving him any pause for thought. But anyway, uh, so where is he? I mean, he had one pledge that he said he would fulfil this year and looks to have delivered, which is the one on halving inflation. Uh, it's come down. He met that by October. Inflation rate quite a long way below the levels last year, so 10% down to under 5 but still well above the Bank of England's long-term inflation target, and we think that's what they're looking at, and that probably determines the course of interest rates, which a lot of people would be fussed about rather than the inflation rate per se. But there'll be some people, petrol pump prices notably lower now than they were this time last year, so maybe that's feeding into a bit of feeling that those cost of living pressures are easing a bit. I don't know, because that's after all why halving inflation really mattered. Growing the economy might just squeak under the bar, but growth really is pretty anemic. And if you're saying, is that making people feel good about the economy? I don't think sort of miserable um, 0. point something percent growth really do that. What else do you say? Debt falling. Well, in the last year of the forecast period, but not until then. So, mm, you know, not really a sort of massive feel good on that one, even if he could claim to be more or less on track. And the two maybe ones that really matter to people, cutting NHS waiting lists, distinctly not going in the wrong direction. Now, obviously, the government will blame a lot of that on uh, the strikes, but yeah, really difficult to see how he can turn that round significantly by the time of an election. And you know, possibly the one where he may most regret overclaiming, stopping the boats. He passed his law, the Illegal Migration Act, Unfortunately for him, that was then found unlawful by the Supreme Court. So we're having another go at that in terms of the new bill, um, the Safety of Rwanda bill, had its second reading in the Commons uh, last week. Yeah, he could, if he just said reduce the number of votes, he could be claiming success because actually he's managed to do that through his Albania return scheme. But if he really wants that absolutist pledge, you will see no more votes. Uh, that has to be another fail. So you know, balanced scorecard is looking, you know, one yes, two meh, sort of, and two distinctly off track. I think the risk is that the uh, stop the boats felt like a better slogan than cut the number of boats by half. Giles, you uh, focus a lot on all things economic. We've had a couple of fiscal events this year. What's your assessment of Sunak's impact on the economy this year? Well, Rishi Sunak, for me, fiscally, he was meant to be the really cautious guy who stood against Liz Truss and the rest of the leadership team. 
uh, last summer, the summer 2022, when he was competing to take over from Boris Johnson, where he did something very brave for a Conservative um, candidate, which is to turn around to his own party and say, I know you want tax cuts, but you can't have them. And this was, uh, this was a posture he put out the previous February and was already causing tensions with his party. It's one of the bravest, most principled thing he, uh, things he ever did, which is why I keep going on about it. You know, setting out that, first of all, you've got to make sure that your public services are properly funded and that your deficit is under control. And only then can you have a growing up conversation about tax cuts, which is what he thinks the Lawsonian approach for, um, after Nigel Lawson, the great 1980s Conservative Chancellor, is best summarised as. Now, he seems to have abandoned that in favour of a more kind of electoral calculus that promising tax cuts and leaving it for, as a problem for future governments to deal with and the future governments probably Labour is, is a better approach because every winning is everything. So as far as I see, the autumn statement, for me, torched that reputation because they took the windfall from £20 billion of extra inflation-caused um, revenues and um, spent them on tax cuts. Now, the tax cuts weren't bad ones. As we discussed in a podcast at the time, it's great that they've made full expensing permanent. In other words, a permanent incentive to invest in this country. And if you really, really are going to give a personal tax cut, one that's sort of aimed at work in national insurance is a reasonably good idea. But public services, as we sit here now, are 20 to 30 billion pounds less well funded in the next five or six years than they were if we were discussing this a year ago, even even during the, the extremely difficult times that uh, around when Rishi Sunak took over. And I think that's so much more important than anything else, given the state the country's in, because most of the problems I think we have with the country right now come down to there not being enough funding for really, really important public services or you know, weak infrastructure, but long waiting lists, um, things taking too long. All of these are things that need public spending to be worked on. And the um, current prime minister has abandoned the idea that you first of all make sure that all of those things are properly funded before you go to the electoral goodies or the tax cuts, which I think is an enormous pity. He's beginning to produce budgets that Liz Trust and Kwasi Kwarteng would half chair, and that's not a good sign. David, I mean, Giles says, is describing what he sees as a shift from a sort of much more mm. responsible long-term view to to a, a more electorally focused one, which I guess to some extent is inevitable as we get closer to the election. But at the conference, at the Conservative Party conference, Sunak tried to, put, to portray himself as thinking about the long term, didn't he? He did this, um, tried to construct himself as, as the change candidate and to put forward some policies which he said were about... Uh, thinking long term, so the the smoking um, policy, the A level reforms, um, and of course uh, nobody could have missed the the the, the cutting of, of the next leg of HS two. What did you take away from from that sort of suite of of policies that he put forward at conference? Yeah, I think there are, in a way there are sort of three possible versions of him, and the one that we talked about at the start of the year was the thought that maybe if he did accept he was going to lose. He would be the grown-up in the room who thought, I've got two years as prime minister, not going to win the election, so I'm not going to have to play that game, so I can do some long-term thinking. Then there's the one that Giles has just described, where he's revert as the election comes nearer, he's you know, might, maybe it's hard to maintain that, because hope springs eternal, but also he's then drifted back to the position that he ran against effectively when he lost, uh, which is more like electoral goodies. And then you've got what, to me, those policies that you described 
still feel like they don't feel like the grown up in the room to me. They they still feel like an electioneering politician who's trying to signal, as you said, that he's the change candidate. So it's very different being the change candidate from being the I'm not going to be around for long. So in the two years I've got, I'm going to try and do some of the heavy lifting that governments find hard, including maybe putting things on a more sustainable footing. Reforming A-levels is nothing like that. And like a lot of people at the time, when I heard that, I thought, who are you kidding, right? Because you're not you're not going to be around. So uh, those kind of commitments feel very different. And then for me, the the sadness of it is that one of the effects of this shift is to box Labour in. Labour gets boxed in by some of the things the government does, not because Labour is then committed to delivering on all of the promises that Sunak makes, but Labour is itself so paranoid as being seen to be vulnerable to attack by the Tories for being profligate in this way or that way or whatever, that they then find themselves responding to these shifts themselves. And so the hope maybe at the start of the year that British politics would, would shift to a different register in which both sides were aware that it's a rare moment where certain things are foreordained. <laughs> one side's going to win and one side's going to lose. And that creates space for different kinds of political arguments. The sadness to me is that that's gone. Um, and and Sunak and Starmer between them are, are, are doing a much more familiar dance, which I don't find particularly inspiring, which is electioneering on the Tory side and paranoia on the Labour side, that they will be outflanked or you know, whatever that fear is that Labour always seems to have, that somehow some 21st century 2024 equivalent of whatever those Saatchi campaigns were that they think somehow did for them, you know, particularly in uh, 1992, is going to happen to them again. And I think that's just you know, failure of imagination to think that that's going to happen to them again. It's just not. So Sunak is not the politician that he promised to be, actually, at the start of the years. And then, as, as Jill said, the big shift has been in his personal approval ratings. People seem to smell that. He's He's lost what he might have had when he became prime minister, which was a certain kind of technocratic authenticity, if there is such a thing as being a sort of authentic technocrat. Um, he now seems just like another politician. And as many people have pointed out, not a particularly good one. I mean, not a particularly you know, a competent, effective politician. He's not even pretty good at playing this game. Joe? No, I think, that, I think that's right. I thought what was really interesting if you like, was the incoherence of those policy announcements that he made at conference. They really did seem almost like, well, you know, here are a few things that have really been bothering me about uh, government. And I thought there's a big touch of sort of Californianism about them. I mean, California sort of leans towards a bit of sort of prohibitionism that's quite American on smoking. Uh, the We need to all be tech bros now, sort of emphasis we'd heard earlier on maths and then reforming A-levels. And it's absolutely not the way to go around a big long-term reform is suddenly to spring something out in a party conference speech as I'm going to do this for something that's actually going to not come in for probably two governments' time. That's not the way you do proper proper reform. So I think David is right that Rishi Sunak did have that sort of opportunity of you know, getting real, you know, having some sort of serious conversations, if you like, with the British public about the choices that were to be faced. But he's, you know, either opted against it because he thinks it's not feasible or he's been pressured by the drumbeat from his party. Uh, you know, lots of chat about Jeremy Hunt's position. Was he political enough as a chancellor in the run up to the autumn statement? And Jeremy Hunt seems to have survived by 
doing the political thing, but it's quite interesting. I heard Keir Starmer speaking a couple of weeks ago when he was accusing the government of running a scorched earth policy and saying that's not a responsible way to govern. It'd be very interesting. You know, we'll hear, I think, a lot if Labour does come in of how much worse the position that they've inherited yeah. is than they even expected. You'd expect some of that anyway, but I do think they'll have some very legitimate grounds for complaint. And I think in terms of the style of Rishi Sunak, I mean, this is just to give a little bit of publicity to when we produce our Treasury paper that will be coming out in the next few weeks, I hope. Rishi Sunak has come straight from the Treasury where he spent pretty much all of his ministerial life into Downing Street. And how did he behave this summer? He went away on his own with a very small bunch of advisors, then thought he could just produce stuff that everyone else then has to... Um, uh, has to implement, which is kind of the treasury bounce of great legends. And that I find particularly disappointing in that being technocratic or being smart or having a high high IQ, that's really, you know, it's nice, but it's not the most important thing to have in a politician. It's knowing how to use the entire machine, including appointing cabinet ministers that share your vision and that you can then delegate work to rather than doing this thing where you go off find the few people you trust and then secretly go away and think on a sunbed or whatever it was he did in July and August and then come out with stuff for party conference. I found that really disappointing because it predictably fell to pieces quite quickly in the case of the HS2 announcement and all the subsequent sort of transport schemes. But also the A-level thing, I mean, that was just bonkers. And anyone who had a decent amount of interplay with the rest of the education system would have stopped and thought, well, when we did this with the T-levels and the GCSEs, that took how many years? I mean, mm -hmm. how much consultation? How much did we need Alison Wolf to go off and do reviews and so forth? There's no way we can just do it by thinking about it amongst ourselves. And so that style is one of the most disappointing things I've learned this year. OK, now from the current Prime Minister to a former one, this year saw Boris Johnson quit as an MP after the Privileges Committee found that he had misled the House when he was still Prime Minister. And more recently, he accounted for himself to the COVID inquiry. David, how do you think history will remember Johnson? And we always hesitate to think this. Is it over politically for him? I think it probably is over for him politically. Um, I also think that I thought it at the time. I still think nothing has changed my view. I think the Conservative Party made a big mistake in getting rid of him um, in the sense that he you know, he will remain in, in the history books, as Margaret Thatcher was, an undefeated politician. He, he won all the elections that he fought. He was mayor of London, the, the referendum and so on. And it, it seems that the Conservative Party, if you want to inject poison into it, what you do is you replace a prime minister who's never been defeated with then people who can keep losing. Um, and there's almost no coming back from that. I mean, I do understand his position was very close to being impossible at the time that he quit. And so that somehow and through, and you know, it's all his own fault, his personal failings created this situation. But the ruin really for the Conservative Party set in at that point, where we would be now if he just managed to survive that and had clung on, I imagine we would still because British politics seems to work in these sort of 10, 15 year cycles and the, the Tory period is coming to an end. And even Boris Johnson's electoral magic, if he has any of that left, wouldn't be enough to save them. But the ruin of the Tory party, which is what we're looking at here, because after the election, God knows what's going to happen. And also, who knows what kind of wipeout that they're facing. It does all go back to that. So your question, how will history remember him uh, for all of his failures as prime minister? And he did fail in many ways. I think that 
there will be a sense of a kind of what if that there was a fork in the road and the Conservative Party headed on a road not to permanent ruin and oblivion, although that's conceivable. I mean, it is at least possible. Uh, and we should never forget that everything dies, including political parties that have been around for hundreds of years. But the precipitous decline in their fortunes and then everything that followed from that, including what we've just been talking about, Rishi Sunak, and he's made lots of mistakes too, but it's a pretty impossible position. Um, and I don't think you know it can all be blamed on Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng. There will be a fork in the road moment in the broader sweep of history. And after Johnson will look like collapse, which means I think history might let him off a bit <laughs> um, <laughs> for the fact that he wasn't a very good prime minister. Um, and because it will look with hindsight that the reasons that he was got rid of were relatively trivial. I know people still are incredibly angry about all of that, but in the broader sweep of things, these the history has a tendency to sort of, with perspective, not feel the anger anymore. So history might treat him kindly, unless, of course, Dominic Cummings manages to <laughs> write the history, in which case it won't. Charles, what do you think? Firstly, I think David's perspective there is fascinating and is an under-discussed aspect that a lot of the way Boris Johnson will no doubt see it himself is exactly as he portrayed it there which is that you know he did these really massive things and they did happen and he won these really massive elections and in the meantime people drinking wine downstairs away from him people who'd spent their whole day mixing together during covid anyway happened to break some rules and then he got tripped up by a bunch of people who always wanted to him out so, so if, if people are hoping that at some point in a future boris johnson admits that he's as awful as all of us sort of remainers think he is that's not going to happen he's going to feel exactly that way and i think the real diehard supporters you know nadine doris plus another 20 percent of the british population will probably always feel the same so i don't think history is going to come up with that big um verdict that makes it absolutely unambiguous. This was a terrible thing. I still think it's there's absolutely no doubt that he is one of the unluckiest things to have happened to the British political system, partly also because he sent a message a bit like Trump. And I know people overdo the comparisons with Trump, but that you can get away with a certain amount of, can I call it BS on a um, on an IFG podcast and get we'll away with that, it. Yeah. And that, that sort of sort of bullish sort of just say things if you want them to be true and you'll get through it can get you a, a great um, can get you a great way politically. And I'm worried that that's that's going to take a long time to take out. And I'm not somebody who cares at all, really, for the existence of a political party. But I think the damage he has wrought to the Conservative Party by totally disordering them about what's right, what they believe in. Because his winning formula, let's not forget, if you take a, that, that manifesto, remove some of the Brexit elements, it was a basically social democratic, let's invest more, tax more, and put, you know, get the state doing more. And part of the reason the Conservatives are in such a mess right now is the allegiance to Johnson remained in large quarter without the ideological understanding or appreciation of what he really believed in. So of all the various tribes, the families or whatever you call them in the Conservative Party right now, most of them are more like Truss or Sunak economically. And yet the only thing that has won them an election of any decent size recently and has looked like it might provide a stable electoral 45% have been the Johnson formula of 2019 and don't forget, Theresa May was incredibly popular with roughly the same kind of big state um, authoritarian formula in the early 2017. So it's right now a party that's left in a total mess and that its instincts are all small state Thatcherism uh, and, and so forth. And yet at the same time, it hasn't really 
ever succeeded with that for a very, very long time. And now it's left without a charismatic champion that can drag them to a more electoral winning place. So I think his the verdict on him from Conservatives might in the end be that he was an alluring magician who ended up destroying them in a certain way. I think the two things to say, one, that the big difference between 2017 and 2019 wasn't Boris Johnson versus Theresa May. It was the public sort of marking down of Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, Political scientists say Boris Johnson actually wasn't significantly more popular than Theresa May was. But I think the other thing is, if he'd stayed in power with the public turning against Brexit in the way it has, would you know, Johnson as the personification of the sort of Brexit we had, would that have still been a big electorally appealing thing? Or has he actually sort of, if you like, ducked that bullet by getting out before those opinions change? So I think it's interesting how much the shadow of Margaret Thatcher still looms over the Conservative Party. I don't think Johnson's ideologically coherent enough to loom over uh, forever, though he, of course, is still alive and active. So (laughs) he's always that sort of threat in the corner. And David, just to continue on this theme about the Conservative Party, we've got a lot of Conservative tribes right now. The so-called five families were out mm. in force during the row over immigration. For students of political thinking and political philosophy and the battle of ideas, is this interesting or is it just a Conservative Party psychodrama? Um, I, I'm sure it's interesting to some people, but it's quite niche, I think. Um, and it, it doesn't feel to me like it's a great philosophical uh, debate. It's it's so driven by uh, personal animosities and history, and also recent history, and also panic. I mean, it's you know, philosophical debates don't tend to function well under conditions of blind panic, and there must be blind panic in the Conservative Party because the worst case scenarios um, are pretty bad. And also, in a way, the weirdness something I would not have predicted at the start of the year is that there would be serious talk. I don't imagine it will come to anything, but there's serious talk about replacing Sunak before the next election. I think we probably all agreed when we talked about this 12 months ago that at least the leadership of the party in the country had been settled until the election. And I suppose it has, but it's not, it's not inconceivable. And that is a reflection of just how febrile. Um, the atmosphere is. I wouldn't want to sit a test on, you know, if you did one of those, connect this philosophical position with this family of the five families and know which one went with which. I don't think I would pass that test. I think it would, it, for me, it would feel a little bit like some random, you know, putting together the, the way that the papers do. You, Taylor Swift said this and Donald Trump said this. You have to guess which one is which. I would struggle in that kind of way because you could probably trick. So it's not a, it's not of great interest to me. And certainly it doesn't feel like the thing that we were talking about earlier, which was this period of British politics, did create the opportunity for a different kind of argument about some of the longer term challenges that we face, but also just that basic question, which I know is going to be of interest to, to you, which is how does the state, the wiring of the state deal with any of this? You know, are we Are we really in possession of a political system that can deliver on some of the things that people seem to want. None of that seems to be going on here. I mean, I don't hear it. There's big state, small state, there's different kinds of attachments to different strands of conservative history. But that other conversation does not seem to me to be happening. And it it, it seems more like if you had to interpret it, you would interpret it through personal animosities rather than philosophical positions. I mean, the interesting thing, it seems to me, about the five families and obviously their most recent outings in relation to the Rwanda legislation is just this 
change we've had in, I mean, it's not a change, but the prominence we've had of backbench groupings, obviously starting with the ERG in relation to Brexit, but that that model has been perpetuated and picked up by other groups of backbenchers who have discovered that even when a government has an 80-seat majority, you can quite readily shift uh, policy positions by exerting your, your backbench might. And I just wonder, David, whether you think that is something which would go away if Labour won the election or if, in fact, Labour backbenchers would take just as many lessons as Conservatives appear to have done from the ARG. And our sort of concept that you we, we might be going to return to a sort of stable government with a majority of some sort, which is pushing through a, a, a policy agenda, might actually now be something which is not what our parliament looks like. I mean, I think this is what's sometimes called the WhatsAppification of politics, right? So part of this is driven by, and historians may well look back on this and think there is an explanation for much of what's going on here through technology and the ways in which people, including politicians, communicate with each other. And my understanding, I'm you, you will all know about this much better than me, but my understanding is that WhatsApp and WhatsApp groups have had a really significant effect on the way in which politicians communicate among themselves and then communicate out of their group. And and it is tribal. We all know it's tribal. I mean, you know, to belong to a WhatsApp group can create a tribal understanding. And that's part of what's going on here. And it presumably will also happen among Labour. I don't think the Labour new Labour government is going to be able to enforce some sort of omerta on people using this technology. But I, I would have thought a Labour government with a big majority will not be subject. I know the Tories currently have a big majority, but they will not be subject to this kind of thing because it is just so febrile. And it is a function of a period. It reminds me of Australian politics. I think we are more Australian than we have been because of the rapid change of leaders. You know, the fact that prime ministers haven't lasted very long, and it creates this sense that plotting works and all of that. And the Labour Party has always been much more resistant to that. The Labour Party would never in a million years get rid of a politician who had never lost an election, not in a million years. And the Tory party does do that because it's ruthless, but its ruthlessness is also self-defeating. So I'd be very surprised if Labour politics has that feel to it under a Labour government. But I do think that the technology with historical hindsight will seem to have been a very significant factor in this. David, don't you think that Labour forced Tony Blair out? He didn't go desperately willingly. I think he'd have willingly. It's true, it's a very good point. And of course, that is the, I want to say that's the exception that um, proves the rule. I suppose. uh, They haven't. But that that nonetheless is not not like that period or still still going on, I think, of Australian politics. A 10 year, there's the Thatcher Blair example, and then there's this. And what we've been through recently with the Conservative government, succession of governments, seems to me would not happen under uh, Labour Party conditions, uh, that that Tony Blair thing was a one-off and there's nothing really comparable to it. But yes, of course you're right and that means I'm wrong. Let's turn our attention to Labour. Um, We also began this year looking at a speech Keir Starmer gave setting out five missions. Do we know much more 12 months on about what Labour actually plans to do to achieve them? Not really, no. And I think one of the really interesting things is, you know, at a recent Christmas quiz with a lot of political journalists, when the quiz question came up of name Labour's five missions, 
uh, many political journalists struggled and indeed some Labour people struggled as well because they are relatively unmemorable. Um, and I think, you know, the interesting thing is, does he sharpen up those missions in the coming year? And do we start to see actually what lies beneath them? So what's the sort of second level of policy that he's going to say, we're actually, well, when we get into power, this is what our, you know, 100 days, first year prospectus really looks like, because we'll need to be seeing that to help people inside government prepare to see what that first legislative program might look like and start getting those things. At the moment, it's, you know, it's, as you say, it's super cautious. It's let's avoid anything, anything, anything that could potentially be a hostage to fortune. And the less we say on the detail, the more we sort of duck and weave you know, the less we're likely to be tripped up or see, as David was saying, a huge big poster about Labour's whatever bombshell uh, you're going to select. So hopefully we will see a bit more definition around them. The best to find one, but keeps on sort of receding a bit is the one around being a clean energy superpower. Wes Streeting talks a bit about his plans for the NHS and uh, you know, starting laying the groundwork for the fact it's not just going to be money. The one thing I think that's the concretest pledge we've had from Keir Starmer is that he's not going to turn the spending taps on. But we all know that that, as Giles was saying, is actually really quite difficult to stick to if you care about the state of public services and you're worried about sort of you know, families in poverty and things like that and the rise in inequality. Giles, do you think Starmer's done enough to make the case for a Labour government or is his poll lead more attributable to the fact that the government's failed to change the mood music as we've been discussing? I think it's mostly about people saying it's time to get rid of this government and I don't much care what's going to come and replace it. And so long as they're not saying terribly scary things like the nightmare of us having six bins, for example, that that could swing the election. (laughs) Um, But um, apart from that... I think he is so far entirely a negative campaign. Um, people can identify aspects of Labour's programme, in particular the £28 billion pledge that has now become a kind of, I wouldn't call it a millstone, but it's become the, the focal point that Conservatives want to, want, want to go after in case they're able to sort of switch the Liz Truss irresponsibility charge back onto the Labour Party. But otherwise, I think they, they are not, they're not making the case on the basis of their own solid policies, even though actually if you do work your way through these enormous red-tinged PDFs that they put out all the time, there is quite a lot of policy theory in there. They, they clearly have a, a theory towards how to manage the economy mm. in particular that they, they intend to put into place. It's just not something that turns into anything particularly crunchy that you can really claim a voter has responded to. The voters aren't wandering around saying, well, Securonomics is the reason I'm, <laughs> I'm going with Reeves and Starmer. I just think they look at the, the Conservative Party and think that they're a rabble, they're disunited, they are, um, they're badly motivated, they care about things that nobody else seems to really care about. And, um, and you know, let's have the other lot, even though he looks a little bit shifty. I've heard that they, that he's kept changing his mind on things between Corbyn era and now. But honestly, if, uh, if let's assume the Labour Party's sincere conviction is that having Conservative governments in is profoundly damaging to the country, they're being ruthlessly cynical and saying getting rid of the Conservatives is the only thing that matters. The only problem they've got is if they need to win consent for really difficult decisions and they haven't presented enough of a clear case for that when they come in, like we need to raise taxes by 20 or 30 billion to deal with the horrors that we've got to cope with, they won't have won that consent. That might be really awkward for them. Whereas George Osborne in 2009 did 
kind of square with people that times are going to be tough, that there were going to be public spending cuts and probably tax rises to come. And although it did cost him popularity and arguably that majority that they wanted, it meant that by the time he was delivering all that austerity, people kind of saw the case and he was able to carry it through to another election victory. So I think that's the dilemma they have. They might need to be franker in order to make those first two or three years really politically possible. And David, Labour's electoral hopes might well be helped by the surprise resignation of Nicola Sturgeon as Scotland's first minister. What do you think about what's happened north of the border? Well, I think the Labour Party is very lucky in that it's facing two tired governments of parties that have been in power for a long time. And so the you know, it could go the other way. The cycles don't have to necessarily be in sync. I don't think they particularly have anything in common. But the SNP is clearly coming to the end of a period of dominance because it just nothing lasts forever. And this certainly isn't lasting forever. It, the, I think all of the evidence is that this is a great opportunity for Labour north and south of the border. And this is the thing that seemed very unlikely, this coming together, this confluence of events. Labour seemed to be disadvantaged by the British electoral system for a long time. Might do well in one place, but not another. There is no reason to think that this election won't see what used to be called a national swing, national being the UK. So I think Labour is sufficiently well-placed that they shouldn't be so pessimistic and paranoid. And I think you you, you probably talked to these people much more than I do, but the few conversations I've had with Labour people close to the top, and you say, when you win, and they say, never say that, never say that, always say if, always say if, we never take anything for granted. And I want to say, well, please take some things for granted. You know, if you can't take anything for granted now, when are you going to take things for granted? But Boris Johnson's other significance, I think, is that uh, Labour unquestionably were spooked by the Uxbridge by-election. So they do have evidence this year of losing an unlosable election. You know, there seemed no way that the Tories could hold that seat. And they did hold it, and it was the Ulez by-election. And Labour people will be aware around the world there is, this is being repeated in various places. So there is a way in which the politics of the right, if it hooks on to resentment at elite-seeming green policies that don't take the concerns of ordinary working people seriously enough, is a very potent electoral proposition. And Labour will be aware of what's happened in the Netherlands, what's happened in Argentina. You know, a lot of this is driven, not all of it by any means, but a lot of it is driven by successful exploitation of people's deep suspicion of green or climate-based politics. And I'm sure, therefore, there is some fear in the Labour Party that they could be caught in that trap. That might be the bombshell poster, but I don't see any evidence of it. I don't think that Sunak has the skills to do it or probably the temperament to do it. I think it's much harder to do it in a national election than in a by-election. There isn't a kind of national ulez that you can hook it onto. But I do get that they are spooked by that. They have this year lost an unlosable election. And they will be aware that around the world, these shocks do keep happening. Actually, though, I think they are advantaged again. They're very lucky because a lot of that vote will go to reform. You know, they are they are again benefiting from the fact that they are a very united party. It doesn't often happen. And the Tories are split. And I suspect the vote will split too. You could imagine scenarios where all that vote could be hoovered up. And I think it probably would have been hoovered up by Boris Johnson. It's not going to be hoovered up by Rishi Sunak. So Labour are going to win. Giles, we shouldn't ignore the Lib Dems here. They've had some good by-elections, but how easy is it for them to get a hearing when Labour are ahead in the polls? I mean, it's really tricky for them. I remember thinking when 
uh, Starmer replaced Corbyn. In a way, that was great news because the most effective weapon the Conservatives have against the Lib Dems is a vote for them as a vote for that lunatic over to the left. And that has caused a lot of difficulty for Lib Dems over the over the time. But having a reasonable centrist um, guy there instead sort of eats their lunch too. So that dilemma they've been dealing with geographically by having this sort of two-hander strategy implicitly where there are parts of the country which w- just won't vote Labour even if they're ideologically or temperamentally against the Conservatives that year. And like the South West, for example, or, or various parts of metropolitan London. And that's where the Lib Dems kind of rise and um, then the Labour Party sort of deals with all the other places. So in other words, the voters tactically sought themselves to defeat the Conservatives when they were in a particular mood. And the Lib Dems, as a result, can pick up 10, 20 um, seats. They can certainly expect something like that. I mean, if you analyse the 2019 election, their vote chef went in all the wrong places. It was a really inefficient election for the for the Liberal Democrats. It was outside of my model's parameters of based <laughs> on uniform swings. It, it, that All of these votes should go to places where they just couldn't make a difference. But it's very difficult to see them doing much better than that. I don't think that they're going to... Um, I think they seem to have 30, 35 seats is a really toppy number for them. And I think partly this is... In my personal estimation, they, they're no longer quite the national party they aspired to be between 2005 and 10, when they wanted to have big national policies that looked like they wanted to govern and were desperate to govern. And I don't even think now if they held the balance of power, they'd be that keen for the ministerial car. They know what it's like. They know that you that the minor party gets absolutely slammed if they go in. So even if it is there is a resurgence from the Conservatives and there's a sort of balance of power situation. I'd be quite surprised if the Lib Dems fell up to the idea of trying to manage another formal coalition again. So I think it's another rebuilding year at best for the Lib Dems. I think one of the things that's really interesting is uh, David spoke a bit about the way in which the Conservatives may try and weaponise net zero and the costs to hang on to frighten some of the red wall about the implications of a Labour government. I think we're shaping up for a mega battle on planning, where I think that one of the blue wall lines from the Conservatives is very likely to be vote Davy, get bulldozers. And I do wonder whether Keir Starmer might come to regret his extraordinarily gung-ho comments, almost very unstarmer-like at the Labour Party conference about getting the bulldozers out. You can see why he wants to say something about housing. But if I'm there sitting in my nice house in Surrey or somewhere like that, I've got the option of a Lib Dem, but you know, I also have the prospects of a Labour government trying to force through planning. It's very interesting to put that alongside there's a rowing back on some of the planning stuff and the green belt that Michael Gove announced just before Christmas. So I think it's a really, really sort of interesting question for the Lib Dems, because the fear is a vote for a Lib Dem gets you an answer you don't want, given that the Lib Dems are not going to be a massive power in the land for the reasons Giles just set out. Okay, let's turn our attention away from Westminster. Perhaps one of the most significant moments of the year was when Hamas launched those horrific attacks on Israel, the repercussions of which are now being felt across the Middle East and indeed the wider world. David, geopolitically speaking, how consequential do you think that moment was? Enormously, um, and it will play out for years, decades to come. And what we've been talking about is fairly parochial, um, and not just for that reason. I was reading just last night an article about 2024 
saying it's it is one of the biggest election years in recent history and i think it said that countries with total populations of 4 billion people will be going to the polls next year so elections in india in indonesia for the european parliament so across of the ho- the whole of the eu uh, in the united states you know all of that is going on and 2024 might be a year like 2016 and the British general election, A, it didn't feature in this as one of the big elections of the year. It was some sort of quaint sideshow. And it is. <laughs> you know, in, in many ways, what we've been talking about, and this is partly a reflection of living in post-Brexit Britain and the, the constraints and the limited options that are available to us as a nation. And it relates to what's going on uh, with the Israel-Hamas war, all of it. Uh, the change from a... Sunak government to a Starmer government doesn't really register in geopolitical terms. I mean, a little bit. If Corbyn was about to become prime minister with a war going on between Israel and Hamas, that would register in geopolitical terms. But not this. We're not a very important country anymore. And I don't think the British general election is anywhere close to being the most important election that will happen. Uh, The US presidential election probably is, but there are other really important ones too. And I think the European Parliament election, given some projections of what might happen to the far right vote, is very, very significant. And it would have been very significant for us were we still in the European Union, but we're not. So our politics is what I think Brexiteers hoped it would be. It is very much focused on us. But if you take a step back, it makes us look pretty small. And at the start of the year, you thought the Western alliance would hold in the war in Ukraine. Are you still so confident? Less confident. Um, yeah, it's uh, th- these things really are long, miserable, grinding events. And they don't follow the rhythm of a year in the way that electoral politics does. I mean, the things that we've been talking about, I think it does make sense to talk about 2023 as a, as a period in which we can talk about certain things having happened in a context that then shapes up for 2024. But though the war in Ukraine follows the seasons and winter matters and spring matters and summer matters, whether it's 23, 24 or whatever. And of course, there is an election coming up in Russia as well. We shouldn't forget in 2024. I wonder what will happen there. Yeah, I wonder who'll win. It's it's about as predictable as our election. It's a slow grind. um, And and it does seem to be fracturing. I don't think we're anywhere near collapse uh, yet, but it is fracturing um, in some of the ways that many people predicted that it would. And it may be, I mean, who knows what will happen in the Middle East, but a, a the event itself was horrific and dramatic. What's happened in the past few weeks has also been horrific and dramatic and leads the news in the way that the Ukraine war led the news. The Ukraine war in, in our news barely features at the moment. And what's going on in the Middle East, what's going on even in Gaza, there could be a grinding version of this where it is just much more a question of stamina and nerve and attrition. And it's a very bleak prospect. Uh, but it's that kind of politics feels so far removed from what we've been talking about, which is the ups and downs of electoral cycles. And we, we focus on that because we live in a democracy. But it's in a way, it's not the rhythm of any of these other geopolitical events which have their own rhythm and operate in a very different way. Well, we've reached the end of the year and the podcast. That's it for today. Thank you to Giles Wilkes, Jill Rutter, and especially to David Runciman. Thank you so much for being with us. 
Thank you all for listening to this episode and to all our episodes over the past year. You can find Inside Briefing or The Expert Factor, our new podcast with the IFS and UK Interchanging Europe at Acast, Spotify, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. So tell your friends, do subscribe and leave us the lovely Christmas present of a nice review. We've got something special heading into your podcast feeds after Christmas. Yes, it's another edition of IFG Tries to Do Humour. So don't miss that one. And then we'll be back in the new year to preview 2024. Remember to head to our website for all our work over the last year and for exciting news about our Government 2024 conference featuring Wes Streeting, Sajid Javid, Anita Boateng, Claire Ainsley, Stephen Bush, Georgia Gold, Sam Friedman and more. Do sign up now. Until then, have a very Merry Christmas and I hope a quiet break and a chance to relax. After all, there's every chance 2024 could be a busy one. See you next year. <laughs>